Hey, it's Bill Simmons. Today's episode of The Ringer MLB Show is brought to you by SeatGeek, the presenting sponsor for my podcast, as well as the only fan-friendly app for buying and selling tickets for sports, music, and baseball. With just two taps on your phone, you can instantly buy SeatGeek tickets to an event, and you can enter that event just using your phone. No paper tickets. Drop your old ticket app. Use one that's built for 2016. Download the free SeatGeek app or go to SeatGeek.com. And don't forget to check out my fairly new website, TheRinger.com, for the very best in sports, tech, and pop culture coverage. And don't forget about The Ringer Podcast Network, which features Keeping It 1600, The Watch, Channel 33, Shack House, and our Ringer shows for the NFL, NBA, and MLB. And finally, don't forget about my new television show, Any Given Wednesday, which runs every Wednesday night at 10 p.m. on HBO and reruns on HBO Now, HBO Go, and HBO On Demand. And now, without further ado, The Ringer MLB Show. Hello and welcome to The Ringer MLB Show. My name is Ben Lindbergh. I'm a staff writer for TheRinger.com, joined as always by my fellow Ringer writer, Michael Bauman. Hello, Michael. Hello. It feels almost inappropriate to talk about anything other than Jose Fernandez and what happened in Miami last night. In another way, it maybe feels perfectly appropriate to talk about other things and to try to find solace in other aspects of baseball. You and I both wrote about Fernandez for The Ringer, as did Jordan Ritter-Khan, so we have expressed all of our emotions, although many more emotions came to the surface last night when D. Gordon gave us a moment that I don't think uh, anyone could have anticipated or hoped for. Yeah, I don't know if that's even necessarily true because it seems like things like this happen in sports all the time. Whether uh-huh. I was reminded of when he came up to bat right-handed, I was reminded of Bo Kimball shooting his free throws lefty after Hank Gathers died. But yeah, I was sort of worried that I didn't have that visceral, like emotional response right away. And I think I'm part of that is like, I still part of me doesn't believe that this happened. Like when I was writing that story, I had to change is to was about 30 or 40 times. But, you know, seeing that ceremony, seeing the Mets uh, television announcers break down after the pregame ceremony was that was, uh, I think, what, what really drove it home. Yeah, and you and I wrote about just how many moments Jose Fernandez generated in life and just, you know, how memeable he was for reasons that had to do with his pitching, but also with his personality and the emotion he displayed on the field. And so it was appropriate for, for one more moment, at least, to come from Fernandez. Despite the horrific circumstances, so D. Gordon hitting a, a home run after batting righty is, I don't know, the equivalent of that is like hitting a, a half-court shot maybe after taking your free throw lefty because yeah. D. Gordon does not hit many home runs. Yeah, that's it. I'm, I'm not a fan of saying, oh, you know, this is why baseball is great, but like stuff, you know, stuff like that happens sometimes and it always just seems preordained. So that was, you know, that was one of the cooler moments of, of uh, the season. All right. So we are going to do our best to talk about other subjects. So later on in this episode, we'll be talking to Aaron Gleeman, the new editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus. And I think our, our first repeat guest on the Yes, the that's right. We're already recycling ourselves. But there is new news in the world of the Twins, 
who it seems have a new GM or are about to officially have a GM who appears to be Derek Falvey, the Indians' former AGM. So we'll ask Aaron what he's hoping for from Falvey, how he thinks the Twins can turn themselves around after recording the Majors' worst record this season, and the morality of rooting for the first overall pick in the amateur draft. But our first guest today is really the person who deserves credit for forging the chain of which Falvey is the latest link. Falvey's hiring means that there is yet another Cleveland Indians alum in charge of another team's front office, and you can go back about 20 years or so and the Indians have just spawned GM after GM after GM and the man partially responsible at least for some of those hirings is on the line right now. He is now the president of baseball operations for the Atlanta Braves but was the former GM of the Rangers and also of the Indians in the 90s, John Hart. Hey John. How's it going guys? It's going well. So uh, let me know if I am missing anyone here. We, we were just trying to come up with the list of former Indians executives who are now either you know running that team or running some other team. So of course, Chris Antonetti, who is with the Indians still, was hired when you were with the team. Mike Chernoff came up through the Indians. And then there's just this long list of alumni, Mike Hazen, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins in Toronto, David Stearns. Paul DePodesta, Josh Burns, Neil Huntington, Ben Charrington was there for a while. And of course, you also in Texas were around when John Daniels was hired and A.J. Preller was hired. So we think that you are basically the the Bill Walsh, <laughs> the, the Bill Parcells of baseball in that there's this long line of executives who owe their start in the game or, or certainly some of their formative years in the game to you. Am I Am I leaving anyone else out here? Anyone else we can credit you with? No, but, you know, it's interesting. I got a call from uh, Depot, Paul DePodesta, last year, and he said, hey, John, I'm calling from Cleveland. I said, hey, really? You in there, Scott? He said, no, I'm going to the Browns. <laughs> I said, the Browns? I said, come on, man. So we even got a guy in football right now. But, uh, no, I, I, I think you got most everybody. And, uh, it, listen, you know, as it always happens, I, I think I'm the guy that's had really all the great good fortune, I think, to have – you know, to have this this group of of guys, and uh, I think ultimately that everybody that you named on that list, they're certainly a, a whole lot smarter than I am. Uh, there's a lot of different skill sets that they bring, and I think that's the one thing that uh, that I always tried to do was, you know, at the end of it, to sort of know, you know, mine sort of a, a little older school, maybe a little more baseball savvy, you know, sort of the eye for talent kind of a gig, and and then surround yourself with people that are creative that understand the new dynamics that are going on within the industry. We always felt uh, we were somewhat cutting edge because of the guys that you named. Uh, I, I think uh, really the, you know, the, the two things there, one that uh, you're right. I, I was able to have those guys working there in Cleveland and, and some certainly in Texas. And then, you know, the other piece was, you know, I, I think I was smart enough to try to get guys that had a different skill set than I had. So, you know, along the way, uh, what I tried to do as much as anything was to expose them to different facets of the game, uh, you know, guys that maybe hadn't been in uniform before that they were going to get out and they were going to scout or they were going to get into player development or they were going to help me with the big league club come down to meetings and, you know, actually get into the into the trenches of this. And, you know, these guys are all, you know, every guy you named there is just so exceptionally talented and just some just some really amazing minds. And on top of it, uh, really great, great character for all of these guys. There's that famous uh, picture of the Packers staff in like 1992 with Mike Holmgren and like his seven assistants who all became uh, NFL head coaches. Is there a picture like that from from Cleveland in 1999 or something like that? 
No, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't. I mean, I, I don't think we ever, uh, you know, actually stood up and, uh, and did the, uh, did the pose. I think everybody was, you know, we were just too busy trying to keep the Indians alive. And, you know, I think as much as anything, you know, at, at one point, uh, I, we had, uh, myself and we had Dan O'Dowd, we had Mark Shapiro, we had Josh Burns and Paul DePodesta. They were the five of us together. And I think, uh, Chernoff maybe was a, uh, video intern at that time. So I think that was, uh, we didn't have the magnificent seven, but I think we had six there. And <laughs> I remember the call when Billy Bean called me at the general manager's meetings, the first time we lost anybody. And, uh, Depot, I think was number five on that list. And, Billy called me and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to talk to one of your guys. And uh, I said, well, who? I didn't know where he was going to go. And he went deep Podesta. And, uh, you know, it's the first time we lost somebody. So, you know, and then after that, you know, I mean, it, it's like it always is in sports when you're when when something's going well, which, you know, we were winning a lot of games in Cleveland. We were cutting edge in a lot of ways. And I think people looked up and said, hey, there's, you know, there's some talented guys over there. Dan got the job in Colorado and Josh, you know, had a chance to move on and, you know, it's just, it's, it's what happens. And, uh, and it's a great thing. And I love it. I, I, I love seeing these guys, and, you know, in fact, right now, a lot of these guys I'm competing with, right. I mean, that's the other thing now jumping back in it and I'm going, Hey guys, do you remember, don't you owe me one here? You know, go ahead and let me have that young player that I like, but, uh, no, it's, we, we did, we, we had a great group and, had a total blast over there, total blast. And could you tell, you know, whether it's in an interview or someone starts the first day of their internship fresh out of college, are, are you evaluating them like a scout and saying, okay, his his tool for, you know, whatever, evaluating players is X and his tool for communication is this and that. And you can kind of tell, oh, this guy is a general manager prospect one day. He's he's going to get this job someday. Yeah. You know, it's a, that's a, that's a great question. I, I would say that you know, you're always, uh, you know, especially when you bring young guys in. And, and quite frankly, we all contribute to bring, you know, guys in. I mean, you'd get a, a, you know, Josh Burns would get a recommendation from somebody that he knew. And he'd say, hey, John, we've got a chance to get this guy. And, you know, we all sort of knew where we were going. And so we we always had some background on those guys. Uh, when I hired uh, John Daniels, um, you know, I called Dan O'Dowd. And uh, he'd, he'd actually did a little internship over there with Danny. So I called Danny and I said, Hey, I'm, I'm interested in this guy. And he said, Hey, he's a great recommendation. You know, you'd be a good hire. And, you know, three years later, he's replacing four years later, replacing me as a GM. So I think we, you know, we knew sort of where their skill sets were. Most of these guys had had some level of participation, you know, be it in college or wherever the guys that didn't, you know, they were razor smart. And some guys were great communicators. Some guys were shy. Some guys were, but the one thing that they all had was a great work ethic. You know, these were guys that would go in and work 16, 18, 20 hour days. They were, they were project driven. If, if I said, look, I'm kind of wondering, you know, if we can take a look ahead at what uh, other clubs are going to be looking to do two or three years from now, you know, can we, you know, maybe find a way to go in and pick somebody off? Boom. Within two weeks, there's a project, you know, completed and done and, you know, these guys were, you know, they all brought something, you know, a little different to the party. And I think the other thing that uh, that we tried to do was to expose them to something that they had an affinity for. Uh, like in the case of Josh Burns, well, we, we, we gave him an opportunity to get into the scouting department. And knowing that he was a front office guy, but he was going to be scout oriented, scout driven. It's something that kind of rang his bell. Mark Shapiro was uh, player development. And he ended up, uh, Mark ran our player development department is 
you know, before he became an assistant. And so, you know, we, we, we sort of gave them, if you will, uh, you know, sort of experience where they had to actually lead and manage a department and, and make, you know, make the tough calls on, you know, whether it's draft picks or pro scouting or, you know, decisions that you're going to make. I mean, you can have all the intelligence in the world and until you actually get in and have to manage people, lead people, you know, it's a little different gig. So, you know, we, we always try to do that with these guys as well. And, you know, a guy like uh, Defoe, he was, you know, he was driven for front office. I mean, you could just tell this guy was, he could crunch the numbers. He could grind it out. I mean, they're just different skill sets that these guys morphed into. How has this process changed the, uh, the word of mouth recommendation, you know, this network that, that you've built, built up? Is it different to sort of get your next baseball ops guy now than it was 20 or 25 years ago? You know, it is and it isn't. I, I still think that they're in, and in every front office and, and these guys are doing it as well that, you know, you, you do want the, you know, if you will, sort of, uh, you know, a, a guy that has actually been in the game that's, uh, that's a, that's a baseball guy, whether he was a, a scouting director or a pro scout or a former player. You're seeing these guys that are wanting to get back in. And I think that there's certainly a place. I don't want to overlook those guys because right now the trend is really sort of swung to, you know, getting the young guy that uh, got a great education, that's, that's, you know, wizard smart, you know, thinks out of the box, has got a great personality, is a leader. Boy, those guys are great to get. And I think that you're seeing, you know, more opportunity for those guys, you know, maybe than you will say for, if you will, a young Kevin Towers or a young John Hart or a young, you know, John Sherholz or Pat Gillick. I mean, you know, there, I, I think the, the entree into it, it, it's okay to take a guy as an intern out of an Ivy League school and not pay him anything and get two years of hard labor out of this guy while he gets tremendous on-the-job training. And then, you know, these guys are, are connecting dots a, a lot earlier. I think Theo uh, Epstein is a, is a perfect example of that. You know, he kind of got into the game and got in early and you know, the next thing you know, he's an early GM. J- John Daniels, same way. You know, Cornell, here we go. So I, I, I think the network is there that uh, a lot of these guys, when they come in, they've got let, – let me put it this way. They're, they're probably much more connected to those guys than, you know, maybe some of the more senior veteran guys. But there is no shortage for guys, young guys, that, that have talent and have ability that want to get into the game. And then obviously not all of them pan out. Not all of them become the uh, the complete package, which you need as a general manager. You need to be able to, you know, understand people and, and players. You've got to have a, a feel for players. And, you know, whether you're stat statistically or analytically driven, that's certainly a part of it. I think some front offices are maybe more analytically driven. But I can tell you this, every front office in baseball has got a, a some level, whether it's, you know, whether they're, they say they're a 60-40 or a 70-30, or a 90-10, there's going to be a lot of analytics in, involved in it. And, you know, these are guys that uh, I, I think that, you know, are are accessible, that, um, you know, that network there. I look at, you know, some of the recent hirings. Uh, who knows what the Twins are going to do, but you look at David Stearns and, you know, you keep walking down that line. And uh, these are guys that got into the game early and have found a way to swim their way to the top. And since you brought up Theo, uh, I wrote something a few months ago about him and in which I raised a question I never really felt like I, I could answer, which was, so Theo was an, uh, an unconventional hire, not only because he never worked for you before he became a big league GM, but, but <laughs> because of age and his, you know, he was the first of those 
uh, one of the first of those Ivy League types that are now sort of the norm. And I wonder if he was at, you know, that revolutionary candidate that because he was outside the box, that a team might have success going unconventional in a different route, whether it's, you know, somebody from Farhan Zaidi, who was a, um, who's a scientist uh, before he got into baseball, somebody like that. So I was wondering if you had given any thought to where that next area where you might look for front office talent would be. Oh boy, that's a, that, that, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I, I've got a young man now that's our GM. We promoted him last year, John Copalella, who is, you know, wizard smart, Notre Dame. And Johnny, uh, when he worked with the Yankees, uh, he got into pro scouting and he was in pro scouting over here with the Braves when he came over. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it, it sort of perpetuated a little bit of the fact that you could take a guy that maybe didn't have a, uh, have a, have a baseball background or even necessary the obligatory Ivy League, but what you need is you, you, you need to have a guy that is, you know, that has a work ethic and, and intangibles that are going to translate. And, you know, Farhan's a, a, a perfect example. You get a guy that's a scientist, but if his passion is baseball and he's able to, if you will, sort of connect the dots as to what is valuable within the game. I mean, I think it, I think it, uh, Michael, it can almost come from anywhere, you know, from any walk of life, whether it's a businessman. I mean, I've, I've seen some guys, and, um, you know, as I've gone around, friends of mine that are, you know, running companies at a young age, God, I, there's some guys I would just love to get because these guys are, you know, they're, they're dealing in economics. These are guys that are, I mean, smart. They are, they are constantly testing their performance. Uh, they're, they're dealing with people. And, you know, that's an area that, you know, I, I really haven't seen that, you know, maybe you go out and you hire a young you know, CEO, maybe a guy's come in, put a company together and, you know, but he's, you know, he's got an affinity or a passion for baseball. And if he's willing to, you know, the, the problem to get those guys is that you almost have to be willing to, to back up a little bit and, you know, take a pay reduction and sort of learn the, you know, learn the people, learn the game, learn the dynamics, um, you know, what are the other pieces of the job? But I, I, I don't think it's, I think it's unlimited. I think it, so much of it just has to come down to the person and, you know, their capabilities, whether it comes as a scientist or whether it comes as an Ivy League economics major, whether it comes from a sports management guy, whether it comes from a former player. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many former players, you know, and it's usually not the guys that have made a fortune. You know, those guys, and I don't think they really understand the amount of work that goes into, you know, what it takes to work in the front office and, you know, all the things that you go through. It's sort of like a, it just gets in your blood and but I, I think you get, you know, some guys coming to the minor leagues. Ross Atkins, a perfect example. Uh, Ross was a guy, Ross in Cleveland, is a smart guy, uh, became bilingual, loved it, and, you know, really smart. I think he, I don't know, he's a ACC guy, I think. And so you, you go get Ross Atkins. That's more of the way that, you know, that I remember guys used to come up. And, you know, you don't want to forget about those guys because the player already, you know, the former player already has an entree to sometimes the most difficult thing for some of the these guys to overcome and that sort of, you know, geez, this guy's never, you know, been in uniform or he's never been in a clubhouse. And so you're going to have to, not that that means anything, but I think it, it, it's something that some of these guys have to get over. You know, they got to get to where they're comfortable dealing with the staff and dealing with players on a regular basis. And so, you know, I mean, you can look at it from former players to, for me, I wouldn't be opposed to hiring the right business guy to come in and, you know, if he wants to, you know, spend a little time learning it because there are some really good guys out there running companies or are, you know, right on the, you know, if you will, sort of in that business world that I think could 
could do a heck of a job here. And I always wonder, you know, how big a loss it is to a team when an influential executive leaves either to retire or, or to go to another team. And you've been gone from Cleveland now for 15 years, but there are still people working there in charge there who were hired by you and who are hiring other people. And the Indians are still a successful, well-run organization by all appearances. So is there a point at which an executive, I don't want to say becomes redundant, but almost, you know, it, it's not as huge a, a loss as you would think it is just because he or she has been able to put a system in place that is kind of self-sustaining in a sense. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point and it's absolutely true. And I knew, you know, I, I think the one thing that I've always tried to do, I mean, after, you know, we started having success and you sort of get that first taste of success and, you know, you, you all of a sudden say, okay, I've, I've got it. I understand, you know, I've cut my teeth here and I've gone through my learning curve and gosh, we're really building something special and, you know, and you kind of run along with it. But I, I, I think that two things, I think one, there's a shelf life for certain people that you're going to look up and go, you know, I've kind of spent 12, 13, 10 years, eight years in this spot. And, and I, I think the other piece for me was to try to have a stable of guys that were in place that it could, you know, that it could withstand uh, me walking away, that, that that's ready. It's like you kind of, you know, you want to grow the, the, the plant and you can't have it, you know, choked off. Sometimes you got to thin it out a little bit. And uh, I think when I left Cleveland, we were in a great position. We had Mark Shapiro, Chris Antonetti, and others that were already in our in our group. And these guys were ready to go. And I think that, it you know, they were ready to go. It's the same thing in Texas. I was there for five years and J.D. was ready. He was young, but uh, but ready to go. And I think that we had a number of good hires in place, the A.J. Prellers and Theo uh, uh, Thad Levine that was there and guys that we'd hired that we really liked. And, you know, I, I, I think it's, you know, that's that to me is if there's anything that I've done, it's that the ability to bring on, you know, these talented guys, give them opportunity, give them experience, be an encourager, I'm an encourager by nature and, you know, give them a, a chance. And, um, you know, for me, that was, uh, the, you know, that point there is, you know, is, is well taken. I, I think some people sometimes are a little bit fearful maybe of bringing in guys with different skill sets or maybe they're, maybe they're not quite as comfortable, you know, with somebody that might be, if you will, perceived as a threat. And for me, it was just the opposite. I wanted the smartest, best guys around. You know, you, you want the, as a leader to be comfortable in your own skin, know your own skills. And at the same point, know when it's a good time to leave, when it's a good time to, you know, to move on. You know, I don't, I just don't think that the days of the, you know, the 30 year executive, it's <laughs> getting a gold watch going out the door. Those days are over. And, you know, if you're good and you're, you have a creative uh, bone in your body, there's some other opportunities that you want. And, you know, I think the other thing is that if you've got good people around, you realize these are people that you care greatly about and it's their turn, you know, to run their own shop. And, um, you know, so I, I do feel that there is, um, it, it certainly doesn't hurt to, uh, you know, to let, uh, let the old guard go. And what I hated to lose more than anything was that number two or three guy, you know, that's what I hated to lose. You know, because you, you just never know. I mean, and, and, you know, when you've been around a while, you're not sure how long you're going to stay. And, you know, you try to talk to, to guys about, you know, hey, if you just wait here, give it another couple of years. And, you know, I've got some other things I'm thinking about. But, you know, it's hard to tell somebody when they're, you know, all of a sudden they're getting, given their opportunity, you know, not to take it. But I always like to keep, 
you know, at least two or three guys there that, you know, if I got run over by a bus that shoot, this thing's going to go on just fine without me. And I want to ask about your, your current role as uh, president of baseball operations, which is the new, in the past five years, it's sort of become a, a trendy thing for teams to have a president of baseball ops as well as the general manager. And, you know, maybe you can only speak to your own role, but sometimes it's sort of hazy as an outside observer. Like, is this, is this move a Theo Epstein move or a Jed Hoyer move? Or is it a, an Andy McPhail move or a Matt Klintak move? Does this vary? Is it just title bloat and the president, you know, runs a team and the general manager used to be the assistant general manager? Are there some that are emeritus roles or, you know, is there a strategic tactical distinction? So how does that role differ from general manager? Well, I, I, I think in a couple, and, I, and I, I can't speak for all of them or the other ones, if you will, but, um, sure. you know, I, I've always been a baseball operations, if you will, sort of driven guy. And, you know, I've had chances to go in and run the business piece. I know Mark Shapiro went over as the president of the Blue Jays. John Scherholz moved out of the GM into the president of uh, the, the ball club. And, I, you know, that's never been sort of, if you will, my, you know, my thing. And when I came over, you know, as I told John, I said, look, I've had other opportunities. I'm not necessarily interested in getting back into the fray. You know, I've got a lot of things going on in my world. And, you know, I'm I'm certainly interested in, you know, in, in competing and all of the above. But you know, I don't know that I want to do the, uh, the GM heavy slogging 24-7, 365. I want to, you know, be a part of it. And so I, I, I think as we did it, I, I took the role as president of baseball operations and GM for a year with the idea that a year in that if copy, who was my chosen guy, if he, if he grew a little bit on the job that, you know, that they would eventually have the best of two worlds. They have a young, hungry Turk that's ready to go. And they would have a veteran guy that's been around the block that brings a different skill set. And what you do is you're able to accumulate more talent. And I think that that's, uh, that's how we work it, that John does uh, the GM if you will, he he talks to the other GMs. Uh, we analyze together deals, trades, uh, philosophy, where we're going. I bring the same thing I brought as a general manager to it, but I don't get down into mosh pit and um, you know and sort of you know fight that fight. That's uh, that's up for you know right now for John and, uh, and and I think that you know when you look at Andrew Friedman in L.A., uh, you know it's allowed them to have a stable. You have a proven guy that's done it before that understands it, that makes ownership comfortable, that on their watch, the moves, the right moves are going to be made or not made, and decisions will be made ultimately through a, you know, that senior guy that's done it before. And uh, so I think it's a combination of that comfort level for ownership. Uh, it's a way to accumulate a greater stable of talent. And I think it's a way for, you know, guys that have maybe been doing it for a period of time that, you know, I'm not saying it, it ever loses its luster, but, you know, to, to fight through every contract and to fight through, you know, every call, you know, that you go through and your, you know, Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners are interrupted because you're trying to complete a trade, you know, at some point, you know, for me, I want to be the guy when the call comes in and, you know, say, okay, we have a chance to do this, thus, and so. And I say, well, let's try C, D, and E instead of A and B and see how that works. And, you know, not have to go through it. So I think they're all are probably done a little differently, but uh, Theo was a GM excess of 10 years. Um, Andrew, probably the same thing in Tampa. I was a GM for 16 years. And, you know, so I, I, I think you're getting guys that have experience that are going to, you know, if you will, sort of lead the baseball operations 
piece of the department. And uh, the GM is going to, you know, be the GM, and ultimately he's going to have a lot of authority. And as as with with us, with John Coppolella, the people know he is the GM, but. You know, we work in tandem as a team. All right. And so last one from me, you're trying to do now with the Braves what you were able to do in Cleveland, build from within, scouting and drafting and acquiring young talent. And you've managed to acquire quite a bit of young talent. But I wonder, in what ways is that process more difficult now than it was 20 years ago, whether it's because of changes to the CBA or the fact that half of the league's front offices learned (laughs) from you? Or, you know, maybe the fact that the Indians were early adopters in the, the sabermetric arena and now everyone is on that. So in what ways has it become harder? Or, you know, if it is easier in some way, tell us about that, too. But that's hard to imagine. No, it, it, it isn't. Uh, and I think you hit, uh, you know, really, it was uh, very astute, uh, very well put, because I think that the CBA certainly makes it, you know, a, a level of difficulty uh, in a lot of ways. I, I think there's some good things that have come out of that. I, I mean that. I, I really do. But it, it makes it a greater level of difficulty if you want to and your owner, you convince your owner, and you're a small market club or a mid-sized market club that the, the way to do it is through getting young players and through the draft and international. You're, you're handcuffed a little bit. You, you know, you can't come out and say, let's, you know, beg from Peter to pay Paul. Let's take some money off of our uh, major league club and let's go big and and sort of buy in some players. Do the old-fashioned way of, you know, jump out and out scout people and, you know, kind of, you know, if you will, sort of outspend the bigger market clubs and getting, you know, the talent that you want. I think internationally uh, there's also some restrictions, although. You know, we've been able to find a way. Uh, we've traded for draft picks, uh, numerous draft picks. I think we've traded for three or four in the last two, in the two years I've been there, and we love all of the trade picks we got. We went over the threshold. We're going into the penalty box next year, but we think we've made a uh, dramatic haul strategically at the right time internationally. So, you know, I'm not going to fall back on the CBA as an excuse. I think you can still, you know, be creative and be aggressive and, and get more young players, but maybe not quite as many as you could have, you know, 10 years ago. And I think the other piece of it is that I think you're getting more general managers and more clubs that recognize the value of young players. Uh, There's only a handful of clubs that, if you will, that can maybe pave over their mistakes, you know, so you're looking at, you know, guys going out into the uh, free agent market, giving up draft picks, and then all of a sudden they realize, uh, you know, like the Yankees, that they said, wait a minute, our farm system, you know, needs some help. We're not doing much up here. You know, I, I think that we can, you know, you can still do it. But, uh, you know, right now p- people are guarding their young players. They're guarding them you know, as they should. That, um, you know, we're, we're at a point. We're looking up and say, well, we've, we've, we have a farm system now that is viable. We've traded for a lot of young upside players. We didn't go for short-term fixes. We went young upside players. We've drafted high upside young talent that we like. They're performing. We've dig, dug into Latin America. We've, we've traded for draft picks. I mean, all we bought players, you know, through buys like a Tuki Toussaint. And, you know, right now we're, we're, we're not, we, we wouldn't consider there wouldn't be anybody on the market. I didn't say anybody, but we wouldn't, we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't trade these guys. Not at this stage. We're not, you know, we're not at that point. And I think that, you know, when we're, when you're trying to do this, sometimes it's hard. You've got to pick a team that you match up with that has got young players that you've got a chance to go in and, you know, you get a general manager that's desperate to make a deal. And 
So, or their, you know, their ownership has said it's win now, but those, those are hard to find. And cause, cause general managers are guarding their young players. They're, they're great currency for building a, a championship club. If they come up and they can play, they're affordable. They, they, they fit the economic model. And then if you want to get into free agency, you can sort of pick and choose, you know, where you want to go and how you want to do it. You know, I, I mean, you, you have to do it. You have to draft well. And, and even if you decide you want to buy it consistently, you know, you look at San Diego, they, they tried to take a splash at it, tried to take a run at it. You know, nothing replaces the ability to have guys come through your system if you've got a good system in place where they're going to learn to play the game the right way. There's going to be a, a respect for the organization. There's going to be an esprit de corps when they come up and, and join your club. And those guys, you you know, you've got to have. And, um, and, and gosh, uh, you know, I used to be able to go out and, and make trades, easy trades for young players, where today it is, it is really, really tough to go get the young players you want. Although, you know, a lot of good young players have been traded this year. They have been. There's been some good deals made at the deadline, some guys that I wish we could have gotten, but you've you got to match up. Yeah, well, I think we could cite a couple examples of trades that the Braves have been able to make in the last couple of years that uh, no one could believe that you were able to pull off, but uh, we don't have to get into the, the details right now. If anyone listening wants to be a, a GM someday, I think if history is any guide, you should try to go work for the Braves because that's how you become a GM someday. You get hired by John Hart, and there's still time to be the latest branch on the John Hart executive tree. So, John, thanks a lot for coming on. It's always a pleasure, guys. We've got we've got a list of uh, of '90s Indians questions, Albert <laughs> Bell questions that we didn't have time for today. Boy, oh boy, do I have some answers to those questions. That's all I'm saying there. <laughs> do I have some stories to tell? If only those walls could talk. <laughs> all right, we'll save that for next time. All right. Thanks, John. Okay. All right, guys. Later. All right, before we talk to Aaron Gleeman, let's pause for a few words from our sponsors for today, starting with Blue Apron. Not all ingredients are created equal. Fresh, high-quality ingredients taste better and are better for you, so it's important to know where your food comes from. I've personally cooked with Blue Apron. Even better, I've been cooked for with Blue Apron ingredients. Although, really, it's so easy that even I, a guy with about a 20 cooking tool on the 20 to 80 scouting scale, can do it. You'll love the variety of ingredients used. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, and ranchers across the United States. As a result, its seafood is sourced sustainably and its beef is raised humanely. They even use regenerative farming practices for their produce. Some of the meals available in September, and if you're between meals right now, I apologize for this tantalizing imagery, eggplant and chickpea tagine with islander pepper, tomato, and couscous. Summer udon noodle salad with cherry tomatoes, corn, and summer sweet pepper. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash ringermlb. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash ringer MLB. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. And I also want to tell you about Indochino. Every man looks better in a suit. I like the life of a writer slash podcaster, but my one regret is that I don't get to suit up more often. I guess there's nothing stopping me. But one thing that should give you pause when you're purchasing a suit is that the generic off-the-rack options really can't compare with the made-to-measure suit. And Indochino is one of the largest made-to-measure menswear brands. They're making it easy for men to get great-fitting, high-quality 
quality suits and shirts at an incredible price. This is how it works. You visit Indochino.com or drop by one of their nine North American showrooms. You pick from hundreds of fabrics and patterns. You choose your customizations from lapels to pleats to jacket linings and more. You submit your body measurements. Be honest. You want that suit to fit well. And then you kick back, relax, and get ready to step into the best, most stylish suit you've ever worn in just four weeks. And this week, our listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $389 at Indochino.com when entering MLB at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free, and your satisfaction is guaranteed or your money back. I defy you to find any downside to this offer. So that's Indochino.com, promo code MLB for any premium suit for just $389 and free shipping. You'll never have to worry about badly fitting suits or expensive trips to the tailor again. Indochino, get ready to look like a million bucks. All right, so our next guest was hired as the editor-in-chief of Baseball Prospectus and started that job this week, which presumably took him out of the running for the Minnesota Twins GM job. Otherwise, he would have been a pretty good choice. He's been writing about the Twins at AaronGleeman.com since 2002. He's worked and written many other places. He also hosts the Gleeman and the Geek podcast about the Twins and other things. Aaron Gleeman, hey, how are you? I'm good. How are you guys? All right. So uh, we're in this limbo where the Twins, according to many reports, have hired Derek Falvey as their GM, but that hasn't been officially announced or confirmed by the team, perhaps because the Indians just clinched the AL Central last night and Falvey gets to pop some champagne before he takes over the new job. So what do we know about Falvey other than the fact that he was the Indians' AGM? And what about his hiring or at least about his specific skills as we're aware of them makes you happy or sad that he is now running the team you root for? I think the focus, at least around like the sort of very old school media, which has matched the Twins' old school ways for so many years, is that he's, (laughs) you know, he's 32 or I think maybe just turned 33. Uh, he is very new school. He's a guy who I think like took him seven years to go from intern with the Indians to assistant GM. He was the only the assistant GM, I think, for less than a year. Uh, so experience is not going to be his strong suit. But I think from my point of view, as somebody who has, I don't know, I'll say suffered through the uh, bad effects of their old school ways for the past six years or so, he's very intriguing. I mean, anyone you talk to has either worked with him or knows of the the stuff he's done with the Indians, says he's super smart and he is a stat head, but also somebody who can, you know, work with people, which is always the big concern people have uh, fairly or unfairly with analytic minded front office people. And I also think, you know, the, the task really is to fix the pitching staff and just build the team long-term. But the bigger picture thing is they just have to build sort of a modern front office which the Twins have not had for a very, very long time. I would say basically every year they fall further and further behind that. And if anything, whatever you want to say, uh, negative or positive about his age and inexperience and all that, the, the Indians certainly have a prime example of what is you know a modern, tons of, of manpower, a lot of, uh, lot of brains, front office. And I think the hope here is that he can bring a lot of that to, to Minnesota. When when I wrote about this, when uh, when they thought that they were going to hire Alex Anthopoulos, or that was the the name that was getting thrown around, I went back and looked at the Twins' history of GM hires, and they had literally never done anything or anything other than promote from within uh, since they started having a GM. So, are you surprised that this is the first time they went outside the organization, or? Was this just the, as far as they could go, keeping it within the family without just falling so far behind? 
Yeah, I think things had, you know, the core of the organization had gotten so rotten. And yeah, you're right that, I mean, they, whether it's Terry Ryan holding the job for, for two decades or he stepped down briefly about, I don't know, eight years ago and Bill Smith took over and Bill Smith had risen up the ranks from, I think he worked in ticket sales when he first started. And even now, uh, the interim GM for at least the next day or two, uh, Rob Anthony is a guy who started in PR with the team. So basically, they're incredibly loyal. And like you said, they they hire from within. I will say that uh, when Carl Polad bought the team from Calvin Griffith in, I think, 1984, he technically promoted Andy McPhail to GM from within. But I believe McPhail had been on the job like maybe 15 months yeah, or something like that. That's an iffy one that I'm, I'm counting because it makes the fun fact better. Yeah, but. you're right. And I'm all for the fun <laughs> fact. But I will say that like uh, any optimism, even from people who don't know anything about Derek Falvey, is based on the fact that Andy McPhail, I believe, was 32 when he became the Twins GM. And of course, then won you know two World Series in his first, I don't know, six or seven years. So that I'm expecting, I'm not going to say Felby has to win two, but you know, one would be nice. What would be on your to-do list if you were the Twins GM today incoming? Or, or what's on your wish list for the new Twins GM? How do they dig themselves out of this hole? I think it, it, it all has to start with pitching. And I think that's probably what uh, really put Falvey ahead of some of the other candidates. And I actually, I think people were pleasantly surprised with the list of candidates the Twins had. They used a search firm. Uh, and I think basically it was sort of a who's who of assistant GMs or people who are viewed as up and coming guys. So I was happy with that. And I think really Falvey, if you look at the Indians, their strength has been acquiring and developing young pitching guys who can, you know, throw hard, get strikeouts. And that's the exact opposite of what the Twins have been able to do. He has to fix the pitching staff, which has been basically the worst in baseball for five or six years. Uh, worse than ever this year, making no progress. There's a, a couple decent prospects, uh, including Jose Barrios, but he just has to find a way to acquire pitching. And then, you know, he has to, I don't know if they're going to allow him to completely overhaul the front office just because the twins are still the twins. And uh, Carl Polad's son, Jim Polad, is still sort of old school in that approach. But he has to rebuild it as much as he can, bring in as much manpower and brain power as he can, uh, bring it into sort of the modern era. And then the other thing that I think probably helped him in the, the interview process is that he's going to have to work on a budget. And I know Twins fans, you know, Target Field is great. And there's always the hope that, well, if they get competitive for a long stretch, the ownership will approve a bunch of spending. And they will relatively, but the Twins are never going to outspend the rest of the teams. And so uh, when some of this young talent develops and gets arbitration eligible and starts making some money, uh, he's going to have to find a way to supplement that with, you know, free agency and trades while remaining on a budget. And I think that's key. And I think, you know, as they talk to some people from the Cubs and maybe even the Red Sox and uh, guys like that, there's the sense that, well, once you arrive in Minnesota, you look around at your surroundings and you say, oh, I mean, at most we're going to be, I don't know, 22nd in payroll. And that's limiting uh, and may even surprise some some candidates one that, once they get here. But I think there's the hope that Falvey sort of knows how to handle that already. Yeah. And that's the other thing that the Twins sort of needed to be competitive because, I mean, they've got the great ballpark and and as good a, a core of superstar level young talent uh, with Buxton and Sano is as pretty much anybody in, in baseball. But even if ownership sort of loosens the purse strings a little bit, they're still just structurally not going to be able to spend. So from that perspective, are you confident that this change in baseball ops leadership is a sign that ownership's going to be a little less tight or 
If not, do you think that, and, you know, Falvey coming from Cleveland as opposed to somebody like Jason McLeod coming from Chicago, that gives him a, a leg up to to work with what might otherwise be a, a non-competitive payroll? I guess I will be shocked if long-term Twins ownership spends more than, you know, bottom third of the league money. They may up it a little bit from where it's been. Uh, but that it's just the reality of not only Minnesota as a market, but I think more so just sort of the pole ed family. And it, it, that's just how things are going to be. And you can win, you know, ranking 20th, 22nd in payroll. I don't think that's as big a concern as a lot of the developmental issues that they've had. I, I think, you know, maybe in the short term, they're going to open up the wallet a little bit. Uh, the roster is very cheap right now, except for like Joe Maurer and a couple other players. I think they have about 60 million on the books for next year so there's definitely an opportunity for Falvey to come in and if he likes a free agent or two you can sign somebody to a, a two three four year deal and not have it really affect your payroll because for the most part uh, like you mentioned most of the play in-house players you want to build around are making the minimum for this year next year and a couple years after that yeah and it seems like this would be a pretty appealing opportunity for an aspiring gm we've mentioned a couple of the concerns you might not be allowed to overhaul the entire organization you might not have the payroll you want on the other hand you do have that young talent and you have low expectations, I guess, or, or at least a low bar to clear because the Twins have been bad for a while and they have the worst record in baseball. So there's nowhere to go but up. And if you want to establish your reputation and make your name, then no better way to do it than to take over the team with the worst record in baseball. And even if you just make it a little bit better, it's an improvement. Yeah, I mean, they're terrible this year. They've been terrible for five out of the last six years. There is basically no expectation. And also, there's just, you know, you're going to improve by, I don't know, 10 games next year. You could do nothing and still do that. And then you combine the lack of expectations with, like we talked about earlier, if you win at all here, you know, Terry Ryan had a sub-500 record for his whole tenure, and they won one playoff series in like two decades and he was shown incredible loyalty, even to the point that people were, you know, arguing in favor of keeping him. And it it seemed like an incredibly painful, uh, you know, parting of ways when they finally let him go. And so, it, you know, if Derek Falvey comes in and you even win, I don't know, if you approach 500 within two years and then win a couple division titles, you know, in the first five or six years, you're going to have incredible loyalty. The, the limitations are always going to be there, but he enters with basically a relatively clean slate and at a time when people locally, whether it's media, whether it's fans, I think finally realized the the way the twins did things for so long just didn't work anymore. And I think people are so ready here for just a new way to approach, you know, building a baseball team that it, it's a good situation for him, particularly if he's confident that he can find pitching. And how's that sort of playing in Minnesota right now? Because the ascent back to contention has taken a huge step back this year because a lot of people, including me, thought that the Twins were going to be at least on the fringes of the playoff race. Like last year was the step forward, like the Astros going to about 70 wins, 75 wins in 2014 before they made the playoffs last year. And then we're sort of back to square one. And Buxton, it looked like for a while, took a big step back. Barrios uh, took a big step back. And now you're talking about he's going to be a hero if he gets back to 500 in two years. So how big a, a shock is, is that been? 
I mean, I was wrong about them too. And I've, you know, I've been writing about the twins for a long time and I've never been accused of being optimistic, but I saw them win 83 last year with a very young roster full of, you know, rookies and second year guys. And I thought, well, I don't know why you'd expect them to be that much worse. They didn't really do anything uh, during the off season. So I wasn't pegging them to, to make a huge jump, but I certainly thought another 500 season was, was very doable. And it, it just collapsed. Although if you look a lot of their young position players, you know, Sano took a, a slight step backward, but Max Kepler has, has looked pretty decent. Jorge Polanco has looked pretty good. Buxton has been fantastic in September. Even Eddie Rosario has shown some signs in the second half. They have the the position player talent, and I think they're going to end up ranking about sixth or seventh in in runs scored in the AL, which for I believe that they're the second youngest lineup in the AL. So that's pretty good. But ultimately. The pitching fell apart to such an extent that they were just not in games. They would lose, you know, 11 to 8, and it, it's just it's demoralizing, and it also sort of takes some of the shine off of the young position players because it, it almost seemed like, well, it, it doesn't matter. And, you know, they're going to improve just like their record's going to improve. They're, they're going to allow fewer runs next year just because you almost have to, but they're not going to be able to sort of spend their way into building a rotation. Uh, and so, you know, whatever magic Falvey did, and he got a lot of credit in talking to people the last 24 hours for the pitching that the, the Indians have put together. And so he's going to have to find a way to duplicate that because they're not going anywhere without the pitching. But the good side is the position players are, are largely in place, especially if he is confident that he can build up the pitching without parting with whether it's Brian Dozier or some of those young position players that we talked about. Yeah, and we have to ask about Buxton specifically, who he's obviously had an up and down season, literally, if you count all the trips back and forth from Rochester, but he has now finally really shown the the promise that everyone expected. So Heading into next year, I would imagine he's going to be a very popular breakout player pick. I mean, where where should Byron Buxton go in a fantasy draft next spring based on what we've seen from him in September, but also keeping in mind what we had seen from him before that? Yeah, it, he's a very tough player to, to get a handle on because he's still 22 years old and you watch him and he's just all raw skill. I mean, he is just... Even when he's, I think he's probably the fastest, you know, maybe Billy Hamilton's faster, but he, he might be the fastest player in baseball. And yet you watch him go first to third or home to third on a triple. And it's like he runs almost faster than his body will allow. And that is just sort of how he is at this point. He is, he goes all out in the outfield chasing everything, which gets him injured and knocked around. And at the plate, he is extremely raw. And that's the, the red flag now is basically, he strikes out a ton. He doesn't walk much. He's made some progress with that in September, but mostly his September breakout has been, I think he has seven homers and these are crushed homers. These are not, you know, wall scraping. These are 430 foot, 440 foot. He hit a grand slam to dead center. Like I think because of his speed and because he's a center fielder and all that stuff, he was viewed as sort of, well, this guy your, will be your future leadoff hitter. And he might be, but right now he looks like a sort of swing at everything, bad plate discipline potential 25 homer guy which he's already I think one of the better center fielders I've ever seen I mean his range combined with sort of his fearlessness is amazing uh, and I'm saying that as somebody who grew up watching Torrey Hunter uh, in his prime I, I think Buxton is probably already better and so if he hits at all he's going to be a star I just think people have to adjust their expectations a little bit from a top of the order base stealing guy to he might be you know a 250 hitter who strikes out a bunch, doesn't walk much, but hits 25 homers. And that's, 
it's a it's a weird skill set from a incredibly fast gold glove center fielder, but it would be hugely valuable. Yeah, I, I believe he does have the fastest home to first and first to third times recorded by StatCast this year. So he can claim to be the fastest player in baseball at this point. When Ben said we got to ask about this, I thought you were going to ask about how Derek Falvey, who went to college in Connecticut, I don't know where he grew up, but you know, he might be a, a newcomer to the upper Midwest, how he's going to react to meat raffles being a common thing in Minnesota. <laughs> well, he, uh, I don't know, he's coming at an okay time weather-wise, which is always the big concern. Like it's, you know, 65 and not too bad. Uh, we got a little bit of fall coming up and then, you know, hopefully he'll be stuck in his office uh, crunching numbers and doing interviews and stuff. He'll be at the winter meetings. That's fine. He won't. That's know. true also. Yeah. By the time it gets really ugly here. But yeah, I think, I guess, you know, someone coming from Cleveland, right. which he's been for the last seven or eight years is yeah. not going to have a whole lot of room to complain about the weather. But that that is, Say that, you know. The, the difference between Minnesota in the winter and Ohio in the winter is like, that's still big. Like that's the difference between you know, New York and Ohio is the difference between Ohio and Minnesota. Yeah, we are sort of the whenever a, a hitter is having a great month or second half, I always trot out some crazy Barry Bonds stat to trump that and say, you think this is something Bonds did this for seven years. And Minnesota is that of weather where it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we have terrible weather in Cleveland. It's cold. And I go, no, you think that's something come spend. I was going to say a few months, but come spend our six month winter uh, in Minnesota. And yeah, we are the Barry Bonds of that. Yeah. The other guy that apart from Buxton, who's sort of having an, well, intriguing is one way to put it is Brian Dozier, who uh, speaking of guys who might compare to Barry Bonds right now, where, what is he long-term to this team? Is he a trade ship? Is he a guy, you know, they maybe spend big money on and build around for the future? You know, where does, where does he fit in your mind for, for the twins? It's hard to tell because I think the previous regime would have been very unlikely to trade him just because he's homegrown and he's beloved. But I think it's possible that Falvey comes in and has a fresh set of eyes and looks at him and says, I think he's 29. He's got two cheap years left under contract. But if you really think this team is going to be bad again in 2017, I think you do have to think about trading him, especially if you believe you can get some high level young cost-controlled pitching and you know it's hard to tell what the offer is going to be or what the market will be uh, trade-wise for Dozier just because he's been a good player for the past three or four years you know 20 homer guy solid defense at second base but he's never approached anything like he's done uh, the past four or five months and so if they get blown away with an offer I would hope they would at least listen but I guess I, I would view that as a little bit unlikely just because He's still under 30. He's still under control for two more years. And I think he's only making maybe six or seven million next year and eight or nine million in 2018. Yeah, it sounds like just from that profile, it sounds like another guy I liked a lot from the upper Midwest, Jonathan Lucroy, who put up a, a big season, but everybody was sort of unsure where he fit. Like, was he actually a guy who'd get uh, in the top 10 in MVP voting or was he just a good player on a cheap contract? So that sort of makes it makes it difficult to nail down a value, I guess. Yeah. And I think also just there's no huge rush. I mean, I think there's a tendency to when a guy has a breakout year, part of us wants to say, oh, they should cash him in while they can. But realistically, the other 29 teams know all about Brian Dozier. They know that he's unlikely to hit, you know, 40 something home runs every year. But I think even if you sort of uh, scale back his numbers a bit, he's still a middle-of-the-order caliber hitter with big-time power at an up-the-middle position. 
You know, he is considered a good clubhouse guy. He's, you know, got plus speed and all that stuff. So they should be in no rush to deal him. Uh, if things go bad again next year, you can always trade him at midseason. Or I think, you know, you could probably still get decent value for him next offseason because he'll have one cheap year left on his contract. But it, I guess it wouldn't shock me if Falvey looked at him and said, this is our best chance to bring in some some high caliber pitching. But I would say, given that he was basically the biggest and maybe even lone bright spot this year, a lot of fans would would react pretty crazily to that. And you mentioned the really extraordinary run of Twins not striking out anyone paired with a bad defense at times, which seems like the worst of both worlds. You get a lot of balls put in play and then you can't turn those balls in play into outs. I guess the the upside of that is that it seems like it should be an easy thing to fix or at least to get back to some minimum level of competence, just just realizing that strikeouts are, are okay. Strikeouts are nice. You don't have to be scared of strikeouts. That in itself just seems like something that could make the Twins much better without a whole lot of time and effort. So I'm wondering if the arms who can fix that are already in the organization or will Falvey have to really remake the pitching staff from outside in order to turn that record around? Uh, I would say it's a little of both. I think Jose Barrios has a chance to be maybe a number two starter, but he's mostly been a mess this year, and he's also only 22. They have some high draft picks, you know, at Double A right now, who are potentially middle of the rotation guys, but they don't really have any big time pitching prospects beyond Barrios. But their lack of strikeouts—it's been amazing to me, and I think it actually showed how behind the times the Twins front office was. In that three years ago, they had had the fewest strikeouts in the league for going on three years at that point, and publicly, even Terry Ryan and the rest of the the Twins brass said, "Well, we're gonna we're gonna address this. We're gonna bring in higher velocity guys." And then they they went out and drafted a bunch of college relievers who threw hard. Uh, spent you know a half dozen uh, high round picks on that, and they said we're gonna we're gonna change this. And really, what it showed was they didn't know how to develop guys who threw hard. They made an effort to acquire them in trades. They got let's say Alex Meyer uh, from the Nationals for Denard Spann, and spent a bunch of resources to get guys who threw 94, 95, 96. And then they didn't really know what to do with them from a coaching standpoint or just a overall development standpoint. And I think that's going to be the key. I mean, it, it's easy to just look up velocity readings and go acquire a young pitcher who throws hard, but the Twins just showed no ability to mold them into actual big league pitchers. And I think that's the biggest challenge, and it's probably you know the biggest bright spot on on Falvey's resume. So hopefully that's the the good fit. Okay, and last question. The Twins have the worst record in baseball. They're going to have the number one pick in next year's draft. And I was talking to your predecessor at Baseball Perspective, Sam Miller, about this last week, about how happy you should be as a fan that you are getting the number one pick. And Sam's position was that you shouldn't really root for it. You shouldn't root against your team in order to get it. And really, a team shouldn't even try to get it. But if it happens the way it has for the Twins this year, where... They didn't necessarily set out to be the worst team in baseball. And as you mentioned, they had a plausible chance of being respectable and contending this year. And everything went terrible. And now they get the number one pick. 
his position was that that's the the best possible way to get the number one pick. So how has that experience been for you this year? This is a really dumb position, by the way. I just want to go on there. Like, I listen to you guys talking about this, and I was yeah. like, Sam is a really smart guy, and I have no idea how he could be this wrong about something. Well, what do you think, Aaron? What, what was your uh, your approach to the number one pick throughout this season? I think, yeah, it is ju- just difficult, like, just from an emotional standpoint, to literally root for a team to lose individual games. But I think Twins fans kind of found themselves in this position just about the entire organization where it's like it became obvious that this wasn't going to get turned around quickly by Terry Ryan and his front office. And there was a feeling that like, well, it has to sort of bottom out before a change is made. And so a lot of Twins fans, I think me included, thought maybe they're better off falling apart this year and losing 100 games instead of only 91 or 92 games if it actually means ownership will do something to change the overall structure of the organization. I think with the number one pick, it's sort of similar. Like, does it really matter if you're the number one pick versus the number two pick versus number three pick? Maybe, not so much as in other sports, but I would certainly rather have the number one pick. And I think this offseason, or especially once June rolls around and you know everyone is speculating about the picks, it's going to seem silly to think, well, yeah, I was rooting for them to, you know, win some random series against the Mariners in mid-September that could have ruined the chance to get this pick. So in the moment, I sort of agree with that stance that it's just you're going to wreck yourself mentally as a if you're a hardcore fan of a team. If you are going to say, I hope this guy gives up a two-run homer here so they can pile on another loss and get this pick. But in the long term, I don't know, as sad as it is, I think Twins fans have sort of resigned themselves to the organization needed to change, and along with that, it'd be nice to have the number one pick. And so, yeah, if they have to lose uh, five more games, because, I mean, the Braves made it tough. The Braves uh, were going for that number one pick, and then all of a sudden in September just decided to start winning, and the Twins uh, at no point have decided to start winning. So I- I'm sort of glad they made it a, a non-issue down the stretch. It's not like rooting for your team to win individual games is even at odds with rooting for them to have some, you know, have that franchise altering number one pick or to force ownership to make that change that would benefit the team in the long run. I mean, as a, I, this is a lesson I've learned over the past three years as a Sixers fan, you can root for your team to win every single individual game and they're going to lose anyway. And even if that's, that's the case, um, sometimes they're not even going to, not even going to win the lottery. And Carl Anthony Towns is going to go to the Timberwolves who jumped the Sixers in the lottery and yeah. <laughs> Yeah, don't don't be salty about that. I mean, you know, you guys are. Uh, We'd still have Hinky if you know we got fucking Jaleel Okafor instead of. <laughs> just trust. Carl just Anthony continue Towns. to trust that process, and I think you guys will be all right. <laughs> all right, you can find Aaron's writing and now his editing at baseballperspectus.com. You can find him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman, and you have a book about the Twins coming out in the spring. Is that right? Yes, and fortunately. Uh, for my sanity and for the future readers, it has very little to do with the most recent horrible Twins teams and a lot to do with some of the past horrible Twins teams and mostly the uh, handful of very good Twins teams that they've had. And hopefully uh, that Derek Falvey will be bringing them back to that level very soon. <laughs> All right. So people can look out for information on that as the spring approaches at AaronGleeman.com. Aaron, thanks a lot. Thanks, guys. All right, so that will do it for today. Enjoy the rest of your week. We will be back with another episode of the Ringer MLB Show on Friday. 